The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would turn with me in your Old Testaments to the Minor Prophet book of Joel. We'll be again there this morning in Joel. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. It's always a joy together and worship our God together. Joel is an interesting book. It begins with graphic description in chapter 1 of a tragedy upon the land of Judah and Israel, among the children of Israel, where a horde of locusts invaded the land and destroyed everything there. Of course, not being a people of agriculture, at least widely in our land of America, this may not resonate with us just as much, but perhaps you've seen yourself what incredible destruction locusts can perform, or maybe even some pictures perhaps of even this Palestinian area and locust hordes that have laid waste the land and have caused a famine. This is what we see here in Joel. In chapter 1, it speaks of the broad scope of this and the degree of severity where he calls the elders and asks them, give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Nothing like this has ever happened before. And he suggests that nothing like it will ever happen again. In chapter 2 and in verse 3, the desolation is described when it says, a fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. Speaking of those locusts in figurative language, the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. They're not leaving one thing at all for the nation of Israel. And this affected the entire nation. It didn't just affect some of those people, but it affected everyone from the priest on down to the farmers and the animals themselves are affected by this. In chapter 2 and verse 6, the anguish is described before them. The people writhe in pain and all faces are drained of color. And as if that isn't enough, as everything is taken from what these locusts have eaten and laid bare, so is the ability to offer up a drink offering to the Lord or a grain offering. In chapter 1 and verse 8, he tells them to lament like a, a virgin he says, For the grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord, and the priests mourn who minister to the Lord. You think of such a tragic thing, and what our initial thought is during a tragedy, what we would do. We would fall on the ground and pray to the Lord. We'd turn to the Lord. We'd, we'd seek Him to, to be the answer to all of our problems, and to relieve us in some way, and to comfort us, and to give us what we need. But I want us to notice what is said there in verse 16 of chapter 1. It says that the food is cut off before your eyes, and He adds joy and gladness from the house of our God. In other words, this is not just some random tragedy. This is not just some act of nature. It's an act of God, ultimately, because of sin that is in the camp. The book of Joel goes on to describe it as such, a judgment from God. He calls these locusts, his army that he sent among the children of Israel, which is why he calls them to repentance in verse 14 of chapter 1. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, 
Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. You're in sin. This is happening because of your sin. If you want anything to change, you need to change. And you need to show your sorrow before the Lord. And then further warning is given because while this is a terrible, terrible judgment, a terrible tragedy that they've never seen in the land, there's something greater that's coming. And he explains in verse 15, Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. He speaks of the day of the Lord in chapter 2 and verse 1, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is at hand. And notice the future tense. It's coming. It's, this is not necessarily the day of the Lord, he's saying. It's coming. There's no reason to sound a, a warning trumpet in Zion for something that has already happened and they've already received the effects of. There's something greater that's coming, he's saying. And you need to realize that this judgment of the locust is merely a prior judgment to something greater that is to come. It's a partial judgment of God. If you don't repent of your sins and hear the warning call of God, then there will be a day co that comes that you'll ultimately be destroyed. See, the day of the Lord in the prophets is not always referencing and very seldom is referencing the day, the final day of judgment. But it's speaking of a time, and it's a phrase that is used as a day where God manifests His righteous judgment on those who are opposed to Him and therefore destroys those ungodly people and ungodly nations. There would be an ultimate day when Gentile nations would be judged. And as we know in the New Testament, when Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, of a destruction of Jerusalem, a day of the Lord would come even for God's people. As they had rejected the Messiah, God rejected them, and that ulti ultimate judgment would come. So here's a, a, a partial judgment. It's because you're in sin, and so you better repent because there's a worse day coming if you don't repent. Lest this awful day of greater judgment come, you need to repent. So he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, Now therefore says the Lord, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Who knows if He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Repent of your sins, and God will take this away from you. In chapter 2, in the latter part of that, it's quite evident that they had repented, as God restored the land to them, he, he made up for the years lost from the locusts that they had taken everything away, and they were given plenty in the land. He tells the land to rejoice, and the beast of the field to rejoice, because they have pasture, and then the people to rejoice, because they had what they had lost, and they had been given a restoration of fellowship with God in their penitence. And then he promises in the hereafter, as Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2, and verses 28 and 30 through 32, a future spiritual blessing that God would bring when He pours out His Spirit on all flesh and we're given the full revelation of God and whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And chapter 3 speaks about those spiritual blessings. Furthermore, when the enemies of God's people will be judged, but the people of God will have a safe haven in the arms of God. And so this great tragedy was because of their sin. And they needed to repent of that sin. And notice the interesting language used by God, by the pen of the prophet in verse 13, when he speaks of the fasting and weeping and mourning. He says, so rend your heart and not your garments. I think that's an important phrase that would especially be applicable to the Jews, but also 
to anyone and everyone for all time regarding what God wants, what true repentance actually entails, and really the life that we should live from day to day in penitence. We're always to be of a penitent countenance. We've sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we repent of that and that's forgiven us and we're no longer guilty. We still need to have a penitent heart so as to never return to that sin. But God isn't wanting something merely outward and superficial. He says, rend your heart and not your garments. The way we, we respond to God's call to return and repent of our sin is of utmost importance and we should understand this principle. Consider, I think, firstly, that it's an appeal for the inward man. Rend your heart, your inward man, not your garments. It's not that God is calling for some dramatic and outward display. That may come organically. But He's saying, that's not what pleases me. I want you to change your inner man. This, this should be a sorrow from the heart. I don't care about the outward man. I care about the inward man. And while the old law was a law of flesh and fleshly ordinances, there was still the spiritual principle in hearing in the law where the children of Israel were not simply called to serve God outwardly, but inwardly. And if they missed that, they missed everything. They may have been Jews according to the flesh, and they may have been circumcised according to the flesh, but if they were not circumcised in heart, they were not individuals following God with their inner man, then they were not truly God's people any more than the Gentiles were not God's people. God wants our hearts. He doesn't want actions devoid of any spiritual substance. And that's clear throughout the Bible. In Micah 6 and verse 6, we might remember this scripture where it is recorded, what, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, there's sin. What do I do to make this right? How do I gain God's favor? Maybe the children of Israel during the time of, of Joel's writing and that depiction were wondering, what, what do I need to do to get this right? How many rivers of oil can I bring? Can I offer up my firstborn, the fruit of my womb? What, what can I give to God? And the point is not that there's anything physical that you can give to God, even though we may require some things. There's nothing physical that you can give to God that will make up for this. The only thing God wants is your heart, which is to do good to others, to love justice or to do justly and love mercy, and to do good before God, walk humbly with your God. He wants your obedience. He wants your faith. He wants your inward man. David realized this after his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51 and verse 16 when he said, You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. And he's not contradicting the law. God required sacrifice when sins were committed. He's saying though that that sacrifice in and of itself, as much as the Hebrew writer understood in Hebrews 10, it doesn't do anything. That's just a type. It's a, it's a shadow of the things to come. It really doesn't do anything. An individual who offers up a sacrifice because they have sinned and and they're just doing it by road and through action, and their heart is far from that, that's not doing any good. This is what David said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. You see, the children of Israel, they were guilty of leading an outward life that appeared as if they were devoted to the Lord, and thinking these 
physical things and these rituals were in and of themselves doing something and they're standing for the Lord. But in reality, they were idolaters and they were unfaithful to God. There's an interesting section of Scripture in Jeremiah 7 which demonstrates the mindset of the Jews and I'm afraid demonstrates the mindset of some people who claim to be followers of Christ today. It says, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. I'm afraid that there are some Christians who have deceive themselves into thinking they can do the exact same thing. I can go to work and speak and talk like all of my fellow employees. I can go and and perform sinful actions with them afterward. I can be a worldly person where no one would ever be able to tell the difference between me and all the other people who are walking in sin. But it's okay because I come to church every Sunday. I come to church every Wednesday. I, I'm here. And I'm not just here, but I'm, I'm saying prayers. I'm hearing the prayers. I'm listening to the preaching. I'm, I'm participating in Bible classes. I myself am leading in certain areas. I'm teaching Bible classes. I'm, I'm encouraging other people when we come to worship. And because I've done that, I am delivered to do all of these abominations as if God is going to forget about everything else you're doing on the double side of your life. But that didn't work then and it won't work now. He's not looking for an outward display of devotion, but true devotion. And so when He called them to penitence, He's not wanting them to merely rend their garments, but to rend their hearts. And it wasn't a, wasn't a sin to rend your garments. He's, he's saying that even if you rend your garments, the only thing that matters is that you rend your hearts. And so the people who want to put on this display of penitence, and all they do is rend their garments, they put on this dramatic theatrical display of sorrow, and they even allow themselves to be worked up so much that they shed vain tears, which are ultimately insincere. They're good actors, in other words. It doesn't work before God. You know, the rending of the garments is seen throughout the Old Testament in sincerity. You might remember Reuben who came back to his brothers who had decided to sell Joseph to slavery. And when he found that out, he tore his clothes. And then shortly after that, when they told Jacob the lie that Joseph had been slain by a beast and they gave him the bloody garment, the robe of many colors, the coat of many colors, he tore his garments. You might remember that Job, when he heard of the news of the loss of his property and his family, he fell to his knees and tore his robe. And then even with spiritual significance, not just merely physical suffering, but this this understanding of sin before God, people have rent their garments. In 2 Kings 22, when Josiah repaired the temple and the book of the law was found, and that book was read before him and the people, and they came to know that they were not doing what the book of the law had required them to do. As it happened, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. But that's the point. God doesn't want them to tear their clothes just to tear their clothes. How much anguish must that person be in? How much sorrow might they have on their heart that would lead them to tear their clothes and to cry out and to shed incredible amount of tears? Well, some of them were doing that and their heart was not actually there. They knew that was how sorrow was displayed. And so they were in their garments. They they lament in sackcloth and ashes 
And similar things like that are mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and, and showing that the Pharisees were guilty of praying and, and lamenting in ashes, all these kinds of things to be seen of, of men, and they have their reward. You do it in secret. And so what God is saying is you need to make sure that even if you're rending your garments, your heart is rent first. Only the rending of the heart would do. He wants an inward change. And ultimately, it's an appeal for godly sorrow. You might remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the distinction between the sorrow of the world and what is godly sorrow. Paul explained that he wrote that letter to them, and while he regretted it, he didn't regret it. In other words, he regretted to have to pen a letter with the weight of 1 Corinthians that had nothing positive in it, but only rebuked them for their sin and called them to repentance. A very immoral uh, church that was not in fellowship with God and was in danger of their candlestick being completely removed. Paul calls them to repentance and he regretted that he ever had to do it, but he was happy that it led them to sorrow. He explains in verse 9, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. He explains, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow and sorrow of the world. Not only are their outcomes different, but their outcomes are different because of the nature of such sorrow. Godly sorrow is sorrow which comes from a heart that has its direction toward God. Godliness is the concept of Godward piety or reverence or devotion. And so what I do, I do because I want to be pleasing to God. What I don't do, I don't do because I don't want to displease God. And so I'm sorrowful because I have displeased God. I have not done what He called for me to do. And it breaks my heart. That's godly sorrow. But sorrow of the world is, we've heard described as being sorry you got caught perhaps. Being, being sorry that you have to stop in order to please others and satisfy others' desire to see some semblance of of penitence. Or you're just sorry that you got caught and you're unwilling to change, and so you completely depart in the first place. It's godly sorrow that leads to repentance and therefore to salvation. You think of the difference between Peter and Judas Iscariot. Their similarities are striking, but their differences are so great. You have both of them who ultimately betrayed Jesus in one way or the other. Judas, who did it for 30 pieces of silver and gave Jesus a kiss and led him into the hands of those who would crucify him. And then Peter, who denied Jesus three times as Jesus prophesied before the rooster would crow. Peter didn't stand up for Jesus, and he didn't vouch for Jesus, and he didn't fight for Jesus like he said he would. He denied Jesus, and Jesus looked at him. Both are in a terrible state. Both have sinned an incredible sin. And they're guilty before God. They have forsaken the one that they had followed all this time, those three years. But the difference is the nature of their sorrow. Judas went and hanged himself. And Peter went back to Jesus. When Jesus was raised from the dead and Peter was completely and totally distraught, Jesus gave him opportunity to restore himself to Christ. We remember in John chapter 21, he asked him if he loved him three times. And Peter responded, you know, Lord. And so Judas could have done that as well. The difference was their sorrow. The sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, if you're sorry in a worldly fashion, you will die in your sins, as we recently studied in John 8. If you sorrow in a godly manner, you will do what God wants you to do. 
you will restore yourself to God. And you can see the difference in godly sorrow versus sorrow of the world, not simply by tears that are shed, not by garments that are torn in two, because a man who sorrows after the world may do the exact same things physically as the man who sorrows in a godly manner. They may both rend their garments. They may both cry incredible amount of tears. They may have a distraught look on their faith, face that looks identical. But in verse 11, Paul gets to the point. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So godly sorrow is shown to be godly sorrow only when it's followed by godly actions. And so Judas went and committed another sin in killing himself. Not a godly action. Peter repented and sought forgiveness and showed himself to be more diligent and more on fire wanting to rectify the wrongs that he committed than ever before. Godly sorrow is proceeded with godly actions. This is what John the Baptist said of it in Matthew 3 and verse 8 when he is preparing the path for the Lord and people are coming out to his baptism. He sees the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he tells them, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Repentance is defined by vine as afterthought, a change of mind repentance. We often talk of it as a a 180 turn. That's exactly what it is. But it's it's a turn of thought which leads to a turn of action. If you've changed your mind about something, that will actually manifest in actions. And so bear fruit worthy of a changed mind. You've been walking in sin. You're convicted of sin. Your mind has changed. You've repented. That's going to show as you change your actions. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul mentioned those things. What clearing of yourselves? You put away the sinful person that was described in 1 Corinthians 5. You obeyed my command. You stopped doing this. You stopped doing that. And while they still had some things to do to be right with God in totality, some things to repent of, some things to change, They had showed true penitence of a godly nature because they changed not just in their hearts, but it showed in their actions. And it comes from the heart, ultimately, that penitence. In Matthew 15 and verse 18, Jesus said, Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. In Proverbs 4.23 It explains, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. So penitence is not an outward display. Penitence is an inward change, which leads to an outward change of action. And that's what he's calling these people to. Rend your hearts, not your garments. It may be that they rent their hearts, and in that emotion that it provoked, they rent their garments. Not saying it was a sin to rend your garments. He's saying, make sure you don't miss the whole point. God doesn't want some outward display, which means nothing. He wants your heart. But what does that mean? Rend your heart, not your garments. We understand godly sorrow, but but even godly sorrow, again, is only identified as godly as it leads to godly actions. So a, a heart is not rent just upon the appearance of sorrow. A heart is rent upon the change of mind and that leading to change of action. What does it mean? to rend your heart. It suggests to you that the heart is the seat of our intellect, our will, and all our aspirations, our goals, our desires. 
And the Scripture bears that out very clearly. Consider that it is the heart of our intellect. In Genesis, the sixth chapter, after the sons of God intermingled and married with the daughters of men, and evil was exponentially grown, it said that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We think with the heart. Likewise, in Mark 2 and verse 8, when Jesus told this man, your sins are forgiven you, and the Pharisees were quarreling amongst themselves, Jesus said, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? We think with our hearts. We reason with our hearts. Matthew 13 and verse 15, and explaining, as he quoted from Isaiah's prophecy, why he speaks to them in parables, he says, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. And then in Acts 8 and verse 37, when they came upon some water, the Ethiopian eunuch asked, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart. You see, people want to talk about the heart as being purely an emotional thing. Certainly, it's also the seat of our emotions, which also connects with our aspirations, what moves us, what we long for, and what drives us. But it's an intellectual thing. It's not talking about our blood pump. We're able to think, and we're able to not just think, but reason, use logic in in our rational human mind that God blessed us with so that we can come to an understanding and believe, be convicted by these things. The reason why some don't believe is because they don't follow the logic with their heart. They seek what is in the world. It is the seed of our intellect, but intellect is only as good as it leads to a change of will. The heart intends, Hebrews 4 and verse 12, the Word of God divides the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so we intend based on our intellect. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, speaking of the contribution, Paul writes, let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Someone says, I never meant to do it, but everything we do is with purpose in our heart. We don't just randomly do things. And it may have been something that is is automatic at some point that we didn't even really think when we did it and and we're sorry that we did it, but it started somewhere with some purpose. It started somewhere with some thought. There's no such thing as a corrupt nature. There is such thing as a nature that has become corrupt because of habit and taking in those things. The heart obeys. Romans 6 and verse 17, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And with that obedience comes the growth to love. Matthew 22 and verse 37, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But it's also the seed of our aspiration. It's it's the things we desire which are a reflection of our intellect that has affected our will. In Romans 10 and verse 1, we might remember the Apostle Paul speaking of those who had rejected Christ said, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He desired with his heart and so do we. Jesus appealed to that concept in Matthew, the sixth chapter, when he speaks of where our heart should be. And he said in verse 21, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Not speaking of some necessarily physical treasure or specific treasure. He's speaking of what we desire, what we long for. That's where our heart will be. If it's for earthly things, it's on the earth. If it's for heavenly things, it's in heaven. And with the heart, we trust our God that he'll give us those things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
So think of that when we're called to rend our hearts. The rent heart is that which investigates our innermost thoughts, our innermost desires, our motivations, and if they are not in line with what God said they should be, we tear it up completely and change it. We empty it of all of that. And we fill it with what God says we should have. Albert Barnes comments on Joel 2.13. He says, Such a penitent rends and rips up by a narrow search of the recesses of the heart to discover the abominations thereof and pours out before God the diseased and perilous stuff pent up there, festering there, expels the evil thoughts lodged in it and opens it in, it, it in all things to the reception of divine grace. This rending then is the casting out of the sins and passions. God's telling them, rip your heart, rend your heart, not your garments. Find out what you truly are and what you've truly been thinking. And be sorry about that to the extent that you empty it all out, get rid of it, and then conform your heart, your intellect, your will, and your aspirations to what God says you should have. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 tells us, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. That's what he's calling them to do. Your sorrow is for sin. Is it after a godly manner or after the manner of the world? If it's after a godly manner, rend your heart, empty it of all those abominations, and fill it with the will of God. And so our intellect, our our thoughts, the things we think about, what we reason and what we come to understand, what we believe in truly, is that in accordance with God's Word? Are we allowing doubts to fester in our minds? Are we reading things and consuming things which are ungodly, contrary to God's will, and therefore are affecting our own will, our our intentions and purposes, and the actions that we take, reflections of a love for God or a love for the world? It's not some subjective thing. It's an objective matter. We can know by comparing it to God's Word. And then our aspirations, which are a reflection of our intellect and our will, what we're taking in and what we're deciding to do with it, Are they reflections of desires in heaven? Or are we merely showing that our aspiration is to be great on earth, to fulfill our fleshly pleasures? And do we trust that the sacrifice is worth the reward? Those are things only we ourselves can answer. As I mentioned before, this doesn't just come at the moment of sin, but our life should be penitent. And so we should have a rent heart throughout our life to make sure that those things are in line with God's will. The one who is filled with godly sorrow is the one who realizes that his intellect, what he's been consuming, what he's been taking in, that's not right with God. And that the corresponding will is obviously not right with God. And the aspirations of that person, all that he desires, all that that person wants, all that that person lives for, is quite obviously not in line with God's will. And so he tears all of that up, throws it in the garbage, and replaces it with what God wants. Such will go about in a true change of heart and mind, changing the matters of the intellect, will, and aspiration. As Psalm 119 and verse 9 says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Change of intellect. What am I consuming? What am I taking in? What am I learning? With my whole heart, he says, I've sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
As Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, till I come, give attention to reading, exhortation, and to doctrine. Meditate on these things and give yourself entirely to them. Take heed to them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Or as Philippians 4 and verse 8 tells us, whatever things are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and of good report, if there's any virtue and praiseworthy, meditate on these things. What are we taking in? Penitence doesn't just come from a continuation and the thoughts you had before, but a change in that. You cannot get out of your sin by continuing to consume the same things that got you there. Because without a change of intellect, there will be no change of will. In Romans 6 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul explains, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your instruments of righteousness to God. In Ephesians 5 and verse 15, Paul says, Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So we're not going to be seeking and taking advantage of opportunities to fulfill desires of our flesh. But we're going to be thinking about things God wants and requires of us and taking advantage of those opportunities because we'll never see them once they pass. Or as Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And you think of Paul as a case study of that. His intellect was changed as he came to the knowledge of God's Word. Therefore, his will changed and his aspirations changed. Colossians 3 and verses 1 through 4, it tells us if we are raised with Christ, we're to seek the things which are above. We're to set our mind on things above, not on earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. As Paul said in Philippians 3, all these things I count as rubbish I've given up that I may gain Christ and attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says, not that I've already attained, but I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. That's what repentance looks like. And... So when we claim to repent, or we see someone that claims to repent, there's a very biblical principle that that's got to be shown. That has to be manifest. And if it's a secret sin, it's got to be manifest to God, and we're not going to fool Him. If it's of a public nature, there is the implication of 2 Corinthians 7 and the very content of that, and the logic in it, that that brother in Christ needs to show the repentance of that sister in Christ to those who have been offended by it in the sense of reproach being brought upon the church. We've got to be able to show that we've repented. We change drastically by what we take in. We stop looking at those things and taking in those things of an ungodly nature because we need a change of our actions, and that's only going to kind of come from a change of our mind. And we come to know and know God more and more. Our will transforms into a love of God and our aspiration is for heaven, not for anything on this earth. And that will be reflected in the way we live. That's a rent heart. We might ask about when someone maybe comes forward confessing sin. And they come forward, maybe they have some tears on their face, but, but after that night, when they've, quote, repented, unquote, absolutely nothing has changed. It's, it's not that all of a sudden they're on fire, they're wanting to serve in various capacities. They're, they're studying more and they're thinking more about spiritual things. Their attendance has risen exponentially. They're excited about spiritual matters. That person didn't repent. There's been no change. They have rent their garments, but they have not rent their heart. Or you think about the common phrases we hear from time to time when we have a gospel meeting and this 
this preacher comes and he preaches a powerful lesson and it steps on our toes and we may go up to him and say, I needed that sermon. You stepped all over my toes. But we don't change. We have rent our garments. We have tried to act as if we've changed. It actually affected us. And we've gone out of our way to say something like that, but we haven't actually changed. It's not just an intellectual process. The intellect is of no advantage if it doesn't change in the will. We're about one who regularly attends worship. We've talked about how this is not just when sin happens and therefore we repent, but we live a life of penitence. And so we come to worship all the time. We listen to the sermons. We sing the songs of praise and edification to one another. We may even attend extra Bible classes and Bible studies that are outside of the assembly, but we still live ungodly lives. We have rent our garments and not our hearts. God cares nothing about the motions if our heart is far from them and they are empty, therefore. He calls us to rend our heart. And this is why. In Joel 2, remember in verse 13, He called them to rend their heart and not their garments, to return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great kindness, and relents from doing harm. Who knows if He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. You know, the description of penitence that the Bible gives that we just studied, it doesn't paint a picture of an easy way. In fact, that's why Jesus said that wide is the gate and broad is the way which leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. It takes the willpower and the desire for these spiritual blessings to change completely. You know, people say, I I just can't do it. I don't think I can do it. And what they're really saying is, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go through this process. Studying is too hard. I know that I'm so ignorant in so many areas. I have so much to learn. I feel that way every day. When I, when I sit at the feet of those who have been at it for so much longer than me and they're just spouting off verses like nothing and, and they're speaking of texts of Scripture that I have no depth of knowledge at all in, it's intimidating to me. I've got a lifetime to learn and I will never learn everything. It takes effort. It's not easy. And not only do you have to learn these things, but you've got to actually... Do them. You've got to change. It's not easy. And you've got to see the value of things you can't see that eclipse the value of things you can see. You've got to change your goals and your desires. That is not easy. You know, we talk about how hard it is for a physical diet to lose weight. This is even more difficult. It takes greater self-denial and self-control and willpower but it's worth it. It's worth all the sacrifice. It's worth all the heartache. It's worth all the time. And it's worth all the pain and anguish to rend our hearts and live for God. Even when the world stands opposed, we'll receive all the kinds of persecutions and tribulations and trials that Satan has to throw at us. It's worth it because God is not simply a just God which will indeed punish sin in the end. It's a merciful God who's provided us the way out of that punishment. But the way is to rend our hearts. In Matthew 5 and verse 3, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's not talking about people who just have it bad. They're poor, 
they don't have anything in their bank account, and they're always mourning about those things, God's going to come for you. That's the social gospel. He's saying those who realize they are spiritually bankrupt because they've sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they mourn because of their sin. They don't rejoice. They stop shouting with joy and singing. Instead, they lament and mourn and weep, as James 4 says. They shall be comforted. It's been said that the cross comes before the crown. And that's what rending our heart means. It's worth it. We go through the discomfort. We go through the struggles. We go through the tribulations. And we go through the realization that we have upset and disappointed our Creator and realize that and accept it and confess it so that He can reverse things and He can comfort us because He won't comfort us unless we do this. God vows to revive our heart. He vows to mend our heart that we have torn in two because of our sin. And Isaiah 57 and verse 15, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with Him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But it only comes from our torn heart, our willingness to realize our destitute state before God and change to make sure He can revive us. James puts it this way in chapter 4 and verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. You notice there in Isaiah 57, it says, I dwell in the high and holy place. He's high and lifted up. He transcends us. As Isaiah 6 shows the, the scene of His throne and Isaiah trembled before Him because He's a man of unclean lips, His robes filled the temple. He was high and lifted up. And that's where God dwells, but He dwells with the people who have humbled themselves. Humble yourself and He will lift you up. Not from any outward display, but with a torn heart. You know, He knows the hearts of all. And what he tells us after saying that in 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, is let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. He knows your heart. So why not tear it open before Him and lay it bare and rid it of all the bitterness and all the sinfulness and all the ungodliness and fill it with His will. We need to do this every single day and seek to live a life that is not filled with outward display, but especially a changed man, where our inward man is being renewed day by day as we conform our hearts to the will of God. If you're here this morning and have not obeyed the gospel, we want you to know that you have an opportunity to do so this morning, but it is limited. We don't know how much time that we have, and so we encourage you to obey the gospel before it's too late, and we can assist you in that. If there's any other spiritual need, that we can assist you with. We encourage you to rend your heart, not your garments, to change your life completely, and perhaps we can help you in that in some way or fashion. And we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.